The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful morning and a great opportunity again to uh, be together and in God's Word. As I mentioned last night, but for those of you who maybe weren't here, we're dealing this week with the calling of the church, the calling of the church. And uh, yesterday evening, I tried to uh, begin by talking simply about uh, hope and the necessity for hope. It's very difficult to talk about the church's calling uh, without prefacing it by talking about the hope of the church, which we saw is found ultimately in Christ and in faithfulness to his word. That's what we discussed last night, that there really is no hope for the church and for our communities, our families, our nation, without an uncompromising faithfulness to the word of God uh, as the key. And uh, I mentioned that uh, if you want to be original in our time, tell the truth, which uh, was not original to me, that was C.S. Lewis. This morning what I want to do uh, is to consider in broad terms the nature and character of the church and uh, in, uh, in broad brushstrokes talk about its calling in general and then the rest of the week I will deal with some of the specifics of the church's calling. So this morning to talk really about the nature and character of the church and uh, its overall shape, uh, as I think Scripture would have us understand it. So before we begin, let's just pray and give our time to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, you said your word is truth, and man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus this morning. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who quickens us to understand and lead us into all truth. Help us, Father, as we seek to understand better today the calling that you have upon us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you would, to first of all to Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, and I want to read a few verses from there, Malachi 4. It's a short chapter, six verses. I want to read them to you, and then we're going to go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Malachi 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet." On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then turning over about 400 years to the book of Matthew through the intertestamental period there to Matthew 28, and reading the last few verses of Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16, known to us as the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the doctrine of the church... Uh, is a very important one, obviously. The truth matters in this context. But a correct church is not necessarily a living church. In other words, it's possible to have our I's dotted and our T's crossed and yet uh, not be a truly living church. I wonder, for example, if the church in Corinth would have qualified uh, as... uh, an essentially true church in terms of the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of godly discipline, the three marks of the church. When you read in the first and second letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, you see that there were many, many very, very serious problems, things that really, quite frankly, make your hair stand on end when you read about them, and yet the church in Corinth was still a true church. It was still the church. So we can have our doctrines right on this and yet be lifeless and not be speaking with relevance to our time. On the other hand, it is equally possible to have zeal without knowledge and to have great passion and so forth, but without the corrective of the Word of God, it can lead to all kinds of problems. And one of the problems that I alluded to last night is that in this passion in modern times to be relevant, as though God's Word in itself is not relevant, we can end up actually compromising, even apostatizing away from the faith. We should be reminded that liberalism in its uh, forms in the late 19th century and early 20th century begun amongst ostensibly Bible-believing evangelical Christians trying to be relevant. And it hollowed out the church, and we're seeing similar movements arise today in the name of relevance. Now, the English word church comes from a Greek adjective, kariakos, used in kariakondoma, meaning literally the house of the Lord. And it refers primarily, that word refers primarily to historical institution or a building. And of course, some of us, uh, and it's a 
cliche to some, but, but there is still sometimes a sense of confusion in our minds that we view the church at times, first and foremost, as an institution or a building. But the Greek word translated as church uh, is ecclesia, ecclesia. And in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used for the assembly of the called of God. The assembly of the called of God. Ek and klesia literally means the called out ones, the called out congregation. So obviously, and you all know this, but I'm reminding you of it, the church is far more than a building or even a group of people gathered together. It's much closer in meaning biblically to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It refers to this called out people of God in terms of their service to Christ. Now, we have been wont over the last uh, hundred years or so to define the church more in terms of its polity than in terms of our faith. So we've tended uh, over the last hundred years, less so today, to be more, most concerned about defining ourselves as Congregationalists or Baptists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or Episcopalians and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, talking to some Baptist friends of mine recently, they could remember a time when the, uh, if you were uh, kids in the fellowship or the convention, you might throw stones at each other on a Sunday afternoon if you're on the same street. Now, I'm a fellowship pastor, so... <clears throat> Uh, I'm part of the uh, organization of the fellowship. We're also linked now, first linkage in 80 years to the, uh, to, the, to the convention as well. But we know that there were hostilities that were actually quite ungodly. Whatever our differences may be, there have been ungodly attitudes towards one another in the church, unhelpful attitudes towards each other. But our faith as God's people, as a church, is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8. He's the author of our faith. So what is to be central is not our ecclesiastical preferences, but the source and origin of our faith, which is Christ and his word. Hebrews 12 tells us we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And some of those witnesses may not be from your denomination, your church polity. Sorry about that. Uh, Some of them, some of the great cloud of witnesses may be Presbyterian or Anglican or Reformed, even Catholic in some cases, like the brilliant uh, Christian apologist Blaise Pascal. Calvin recognized that there is a true church amongst them. So we must be careful to recognize God's kingdom work and ministry wherever it is, Because we, as the church militant, that is the church in history, are joining with the church triumphant, that's the church in glory, in terms of honoring the name of Christ and serving his kingdom purposes. We must never replace the kingdom calling with our church polity, with our particular distinctive. Listen to what one Armenian theologian, I think, has said very crucially about the doctrine of the church. And I quote, For the church to stress the centrality of faith means that it is not the institution nor its forms which mark the church, but something more than itself, something which is from God 
the grace of faith, without for a moment surrendering its Baptist, Presbyterian, or Episcopal nature, the more strong any one of these churches becomes in faith, the less it stresses its own distinctive, and the more it stresses the distinctive of Christ and his word. And I think that's absolutely true. It's not about saying we shouldn't regard as important the distinctives that we have uh, a particular uh, affinity with or for. It's not that we are to say, well, there's no such thing as differences within the life of the church. There is. But it's to stress, first and foremost, those things which unite God's church, which is faith in Christ, our triune God, and His Word, even where there are some differences of interpretation. So Scripture attributes the most important significance or great significance to the great patriarch of the church and his faith, our father Abraham. If you've got your Bible with you, turn to Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. Isaiah 41, I just want to read verse 8 through 10, which lays stress on one of the great fathers of our faith. But you, Israel, and of course we are today the Israel of God, children of Abraham, you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest regions, that's all of us, and said to you, you are my Servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. St. Paul reinforces this, doesn't he, when he says, So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. God said to Abraham in Genesis, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So Abraham, as our model of faith, rested his faith in God as a man called out in terms of the kingdom of God. It was said of Abraham, wasn't it, that he was called out from a place, from his home, and he didn't know where he was going. That's a fairly strange journey to take, isn't it? I mean, when you set out for NBC, you knew exactly where you were going. You packed, you planned, and so forth, and you knew what to bring. How do you set out when you don't know where you're going? It was a walk and journey of faith. He was called out. And we have to identify ourselves first with the faith of Abraham and of the church before and prior to our devotion to church polity. Otherwise, what happens is the test of faith becomes conformity to particular structures rather than the overall faith and calling of the church in the world. So let's talk for a moment about the origin of the church. Some scholars say that the church begins with Abraham in Genesis 12. And we can see why they might say that, his being called out in terms of the promises of God. But I think that's postponing too far the origin of the church, the origin of those called out in terms of a kingdom purpose. 
I think it goes all the way back to Eden and our first parents and Abel. This is exactly where St. Augustine traces the origin of the church because the church is not God's afterthought. We as God's people are not sort of a, an emergency uh, disaster plan after the fall. Oh dear, things have gone really badly wrong. What am I going to do? I know the church. As though God really didn't have a plan. If scripture is tr true, which we believe it is, he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he knew us before we were ever born. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And this was all God's purpose and plan to call out a people for himself. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. We'll, we'll highlight some of its features in a moment. But Augustine, St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, tracks the origin of the church, in fact, all the way back to the faithful angels. And he says that these two cities developed in history, if you like, two seeds amongst the rebellious angels and then amongst the faithful angels, then on through Cain and Abel, one rebellious son, one faithful son. And we can plot these two seeds, these two cities, these two kingdoms throughout all history to the final judgment when the sheep and the goats will be separated. Our first parents had a calling to serve God. Theologians call this the dominion mandate, to go forth and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth. And I read Matthew 28 to us because this is essentially a restatement of that mandate. Under Christ the King, Christ begins by stating his total and absolute authority over all things. All authority, he says, has been given to me, where? In heaven... And where else? And on earth. And it's because all authority is his, he says, that now go and not make converts or make decisions even, but make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all things. I have commanded you. So there's the teaching mandate of the church, which we're going to come to later in the week. The task that we have now been given by Christ as his called out people is now the redemption of all things in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second Adam, Paul tells us. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. And we are now called out in terms of the new man. We are his new humanity. We are the new humanity in Jesus Christ our new federal head, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Are you feeling like a prince yet? You should be, because that's the reality. This is the calling that we have, the redemption of all things. Paul talks about the, uh, the reconciling of all things to himself in heaven and in earth. Now, I'm not talking about universalism and that everybody will be saved. I'm talking about the fact that Christ claims his property rights over heaven and earth. He owns it, he made it, and he's come to redeem it. And he's using a called out, chosen people, his church, to do this work. Well, how does, how is, does scripture identify Christ as the head of his church? He is our prophet, our priest, and king. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. And Peter tells us that we are now a kingdom of 
priests. A kingdom of priests unto God. Of course, we evangelicals don't like the word priest, presbyter, whatever you want to call it. We are a kingdom of intercessors unto God. We serve in an apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic mandate as ambassadors of the king, as a kingdom of priests. And this, instead of leading to withdrawal from the world, means that the church becomes the instrument through which God is reconciling all things to himself. Not withdrawing his people from the world, but introducing the new kingdom, the new humanity into the world and bringing about the reconciling of all things to himself. From Eden then, God expands the promise to our father Abraham and his seed. And what was the promise that was made to Abraham? Through you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And actually, St. Paul tells us that the seed is Christ. That's a very, very important point. Paul says the seed of Abraham is not simply his genetic seed. After all, Ishmael was the seed of Abraham. But rather, the children of promise, the children of faith, because Isaac was the son of the promises, that all those who are the seed, the seed that was coming was Christ, so all those who are in Christ are blessed along with their father Abraham. Paul says in Galatians, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Some people think the gospel wasn't introduced until somewhere in, you know, the epistles. No. The gospel was preached to Abraham. The promise was preached to Abraham. He believed God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The seed was Christ. And the covenant blessings and responsibilities, as well as judgments then, come to God's people. So the word of God says judgment begins at the house of God. We have now certain obligations and responsibilities. And then God's covenant word, so he calls out Abraham and he calls a people to himself. They end up, of course, in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years while the sin of the Canaanites reaches full measure, and then God sends Moses, and God's people are set free from their bondage, and the Passover is instituted, and so forth, and God's covenant law is codified and given to Moses, and then the promise is expanded through the posterity of David, that this is the line, the line of Jesse, the line of the tribe of Judah, this is the one through which the seed, the seed of the woman, should come. Now, yesterday I alluded to Zoroastrianism and Zarathustra, Nietzsche's Uh, character who tells us that uh, God is dead. In other words, and and I said that that word Zoroaster or Zarathustra means deliverer or seed of the woman. So for the humanist, the word of deliverance is God is dead. The promise, of course, in Christ, the true seed of the woman, is that there is light and life in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel then was preached to Abraham, and the promise is expanded and expanded and expanded until it comes through the line of David through which Jesus should come. So the church, the nature and character of the church, expands right back through history. 
Now, of course, we know what we mean when we talk about the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. We understand what we mean by that. We talk about the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But if you read Hebrews chapter 11 and our great cloud of witnesses, who does it go back to? Abel. Abel is in our great cloud of witnesses as an example of faith in the promise. This is a humbling thought. That we Gentiles are not the root, we are not the source, we are wild olives that have been grafted into the tree of our patriarch Abraham. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 11. And we were joined through Christ into this ancient promise. And don't forget, it was never a sectarian promise. It was never a promise, a genetic promise. When the Hebrews left Egypt, many Egyptians left with them. We have Gentile prostitutes in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Rahab. The calling of the people of Israel was to be what? A light to the Gentiles. They had a mission. And actually, because they didn't fulfill their mission, it's interesting that the words, the calling of St. Paul on the road to Damascus really echo the words of the calling of the nation of Israel. This is the calling that they were given. Christ's new humanity, now both Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2, have a covenant calling in God. It's interesting that the early church, we we see from the early church history that Christians were not viewed initially as distinct from Judaism at all. They were seen as a sect within Judaism, the followers of the way. You see this in the trials of the Apostle Paul before Festus and Agrippa and so forth. They weren't seen as distinct. The center of the church was not Athens. It was Jerusalem, where they were told to wait for the promise of the Spirit. And the promise of the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, which was 50 days after Passover. It was a pilgrim festival associated with the giving of the law. So they were gathered together for this festival, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people. Well, what is the new covenant? Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31, the law shall be written upon your hearts, shall be the promise that is given there is that the covenant word and law, no man shall teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for each of you shall know him from the least to the greatest, for I will put my law in your hearts. That's the covenant promise. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter makes this great declaration about the promises from the prophets. Some of you are looking at me blankly as though I'm preaching a foreign doctrine here. Think about it for a moment. The major theological question facing Peter, James, and John in the book of Acts in the early chapters was not only whether non-Jews could become covenant members without circumcision, which is the question in Acts chapter 15, but whether they could belong to the community of the redeemed at all. Remember Peter's shock? In Acts 10, when he goes to the house of Cornelius, after being shown a vision of the unclean animals coming down out of heaven in a sheet, and he says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean, Lord. And God says, what I have called clean, don't call unclean. There's a knock at the door. Please come to our house and tell us about the message. And he's shocked that the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon the Gentiles. They think, oh, maybe Gentiles can be Christians as well. That's interesting. 
Only later then are they asking themselves, well, does a Gentile have to be circumcised? What was the understanding of the early church? Was it continuity or discontinuity with the Older Testament? They weren't thinking, well, gosh, now that Jesus has come, forget about that. Lord, a load of rubbish. We're free from all of those things. No, no, no. Their assumption was these things continue until God, by revelation, sets something aside or shows us how to rightly interpret something that we have perhaps misunderstood. And they had misunderstood the mission to the Gentiles. And actually, Peter, the apostle himself, finds this one quite difficult. So what are we told? Paul had to withstand him to his face. Do we read the same Bible? Do you remember this? Yeah? At the council of Jerusalem, Peter, when the, when the Judaizers arrive, Peter thinks, oh, I don't want to be seen with the Gentiles, so I'll just go to the other end of the table. And that upsets Paul greatly because he says, what are you doing? Are we making the gospel of no effect? In his providence, God used the stoning of Stephen then to force the church out as a persecution began and the first post-resurrection Jew to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem was Philip the Evangelist, fulfilling Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations. So the cradle of the church was the Jewish synagogue and the believers in Jerusalem who preached beginning in Judea, Samaria, and then beyond. The church did not begin in a building or in a structure. As you know, the church met in homes and their custom was to go to the synagogue and after the fall of Jerusalem in the Jewish-Roman War of AD 66 through 70, the protections that the Jews had enjoyed for their faith, which the Christians had also enjoyed as a sect within, being seen as a sect within Judaism, were lost, and so they had to meet in secret. It was only much later, after, uh, during the time of Constantine, that the church, they were even able to own property. So they met in the homes of wealthy Christians, or when they could own property, of course, well, we, we built buildings and we put up Christian camps. Those things are really important. This is not some primitivism that we should go back to not having our church buildings, but it's the point that we cannot associate the church with some sort of structure or institution primarily. The church was an Abrahamic, Davidic, worshipping community that was governed by the Apostles' Doctrine, by the Older Testament, by the rule of elders. In fact, uh, that continued the rule by elders in terms of the Mosaic model that the College of Cardinals was made up of 70 laymen originally as ruling elders. And then in the rule of England, the shires, so I grew up in Wiltshire, that was the court of a thousand. It was governed by a thousand elders. So the history of the Western world followed the uh, mosaic pattern for many, many, anyway, that's just a sidebar, uh, <clears throat> for many centuries. But I find it interesting that that pattern was continued because the church had a, had a recognition that its calling under Christ was significant. It was to govern under God. Now, given this background, very quickly, one of the most shocking things to discover is that one of the earliest heresies to inflict the church was called Marcionism. Marcionism. 
when you read what Tertullian, the church father, had to say about Marcion, it really does make your hair stand on end. And I, because of time, I'm not going to read what uh, he had to say about Marcion. But he was a wealthy ship owner from what is now northern Turkey who came to Rome about A.D. 138 and began to argue that the Old Testament was inferior to the Gospels and to the letters recognized by the church and so shouldn't be regarded as having any authority for the church. He was a Gnostic, basically. Now, given that when Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and uh, useful for correction, for training, for reproof, for training in righteousness, when Paul said that, he wasn't talking about the New Testament. It didn't exist. He wasn't saying, he wasn't referring to the King James Version. Of the New Testament as we know it did not even exist at that time. The Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. Now the Gospels began to circulate in about AD 40 and 50, as did epistles and so forth, and were received by the church as authoritative. But their Bible was the Old Testament. That, that should be a corrective to some of us who might be New Testament-only people. Now, Marcion's teaching, along with the Platonists, was that the world had been created by a demiurge, by a cruel god of blood sacrifice, war, law, and judgment. And this was the god revealed in the Old Testament. And this cuddly, snuggly, smugly, candy floss god, this god of light, was revealed in the New Testament. So you couldn't possibly take the Old Testament, with any degree of seriousness. The old was seen as an antithesis of the new, not its, not its natural fulfillment, not its coming to fruition, not the fulfillment of all the promises. Don't forget, when Jesus did his Bible study after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He showed them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, everything that had been said about him. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. Actually, it may have been that he did re reference, uh, there is a reference to Nicodemus there, but I, he said it a number of times in different circumstances in the Gospel of John. If you'd believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe Moses, how can you believe what I say? Who appeared on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus? Oprah and Jerry Springer? Or... Moses and Elijah, speaking of the exodus, the exodus which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Marcion tried to remove the authority of the Old Testament and say that we were free from all of it and that it was the antithesis of the new. He was excommunicated by the church in AD 144. The great church apologist Justin Martyr considered Marcionism the most dangerous heresy to inflict the church in that day. And there are neo-Marcionites with us in the church today. There are movements within evangelicalism that are Marcionite. That say, well, all of that stuff, it's all blood and gore and war and judgment, and that's nothing, nothing to do with God, the, 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 Christ, uh, the Christian faith. Well, one of the reasons I'm saying that it's dangerous is that if we jettison three-quarters of God's revelation to us, then we are going to seriously distort the mission and calling of the church. 
The primary calling of the church is to testify to the source and origin of our faith, the Word made flesh, who fulfilled the covenant promises, the total gospel. Jesus said His Word cannot be broken. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word, He said, shall never pass away. When Jesus confronted the devil, Satan in the wilderness, He wasn't quoting the Apostle Paul, was He? As important as the Apostle Paul is to us. He was quoting Deuteronomy. It is written. It is written. It is written. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Not one jot, not one stroke shall pass till all is accomplished. We need to be very careful as God's church in how we honor all of the Word of God. Now, as we noted, the ecclesia is the called-out people in terms of the kingdom of God. And this was a term, actually, ecclesia, that was used in Greek or Hellenic politics to describe the coming together of the citizenry to deal with the affairs of the city-state. And so what the New Testament teaches us is that we are the covenant community of the anointed king, the Messiah, whose kingship and lordship over creation is absolute, and that you are a joint heir with the Son. You're an heir with Christ the Son of, Paul says, actually, the whole cosmos. We're now not inheriting a small strip of land in Palestine, but the whole cosmos. The meek shall inherit the earth. Not the powerful, not the militaristic, the meek, the people of the king shall inherit the earth. And this kingdom is manifest in history. So the gospel that's preached throughout the New Testament, what's it called in scripture? The gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came to declare the gospel of the kingdom. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, we cannot possibly understand the audacity of the early church in going before princes and kings and rulers without an understanding of their recognition that they had been called to reign with Christ. Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, probably a verse that many of you know as one of those memory verses you're required to learn as you're growing up. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. Would it surprise you to know that Caesar at the time, when Peter said these words, had made a declaration, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. Acts 4.12 is Peter's rebuttal. No, he says, not there isn't salvation in Caesar or any other source of power or authority. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all human authority must Bow to him, Psalm 2, kiss the sun, you kings of the earth, lest he be angry and you perish 
in the way. We are a kingdom of priests. And so we are called to intercede on behalf of the context in which God is calling us. In a sense, there is an important sense in which we are to govern under God as his vice-regents. I don't mean seizing control of the state. I mean that we are to take responsibility in every aspect of our lives in the areas that Scripture requires. Now, when we use that term government, what do we think of? When I say the word government today, you immediately think of the state, the provincial and federal bureaucracy. But that's not what our Christian forebears thought when they heard the term government. In fact, they defined what we call the government today as civil government. But actually, government was understood in terms of our calling as God's people to govern our lives, our families, our vocations, our churches, and if we're to receive the words of the Apostle Paul, even our courts in terms of God's word. So what does Paul say to the church? He says, why do you go to law against your brother? Are there not men among you who can judge in these matters? Isn't it better that you be defrauded than that you go before unbelievers? It's not the gospel according to Joe Boot, friends. This is all in Scripture. And that mandated the creation of Christian courts, and that's exactly what the church did. And when Constantine came to power, he recognized that the only courts dispensing justice in the empire were the Christian courts. And so he gave bishops the magisterial robes of a Roman judge, and that's why bishops today wear all that regalia. That's where the bishop's robes come from. I know that now it's just sort of pomp and circumstance, but that was the, ro the imperial dress of a Roman judge. Because the only people giving justice to the people were the Christian courts. An interesting historical sidebar. There'll be a few of those this week. Our calling is to serve the risen Christ, who the Scripture says must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We are his servants. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15, he is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's interesting that the modern church, we want Christ as our priest. That is, as our mediator. But very often, we don't want him as our king. We've got all kinds of other kings and rulers. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the prophetic calling of the church is to call all governments to book in terms of the witness of Christ, that they are to serve him. Paul says in Romans 13, they are God's ministers. Deacons is actually the word in the Greek. They are a diaconate. That's why we call the origins of all of these things are there still in our, our legal structures. What do we call a member of the House of Parliament? Um, minister. A minister of what? They were to be God's servants. And actually, to hold any other faith is treasonous to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One of the reasons, then, I'm saying that we've become ineffectual 
in our time as a church is that we've limited our faith to the institution, to the structure, to the polity. And what happens is when we lose a kingdom vision for the church, we start to be concerned with the color of the toilet paper and the wallpaper and everything else in the church, and we strike multiple committees to solve the minutiae of totally irrelevant things. And we argue with each other endlessly about them. While the world goes to hell in a handbasket, we argue with each other endlessly on our committees. We must not confine the faith within the walls of the Kariah Kondoma. We are the ecclesia, the called out people of God, given our marching orders in Scripture. This book is not a devotional manual slash crystal ball to simply enrich my private life. It's the marching orders of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to his people. That's why Paul likens the church to an army all of the time. Of course, we don't like those uh, metaphors today, do we? Is that army wearing a blue hat or a green hat? But Paul talks about us being an army all of the time. And that we are serving our captain. That is, we have a mission because there's a battle. And the battle isn't about what color the paint is downstairs in the new church washrooms, but the purposes of Christ out there, his kingdom. After all, he did teach us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We read in Malachi, at the beginning, Malachi 4, that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. The healing is for the world. And that His people will leap like well-fed calves from the stall. And the wicked will be made as ash beneath the Messiah's feet. This all goes back, of course, in my thinking, to Daniel and the uncut stone that smashes the idol of the empire's. Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in those days, Malachi says, the law of God will be remembered and the anointed one shall come. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. And he's going to send out his new people, his new humanity in terms of the great commission to teach all nations all things I have commanded you. Of the great commission... Jerome, one of the great fathers of the early church, said this. Jesus approached them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This authority was given to the one who had just been crucified, buried, laid dead, and afterwards had arisen. Authority was given to him both in heaven and earth, so that he who once reigned in heaven might also reign on earth through the faith of his people. Teach them to absorb all I have commanded you. Well, lest we think these commandments of little consequence or few in number, he added, all that I have commanded you, so that those who were to believe and be baptized in the Trinity would observe everything that had been taught. I was reading an article in the National Post recently called Christianity's New Core. This great commission is critically important, of course, and when we speak about mission, we still often think in terms of sending people from Canada to other parts of the world. I suggest we start to rethink the mission right now. Listen to what Charles Lewis says. 
National Post, December 31st, 2009. It is a vision most mainstream Canadian church leaders can only dream of. Sunday mornings during which parishioners dance and sing through three-hour services. Seminaries overflowing and unable to keep up with demand for pastors as the number of newly baptized believers rises. The dream is a reality in such places as Kenya, Nigeria, and Uganda where there is an explosion of Christianity. In the past decade, this demographic surge has started to spill out of Africa as well as Asia and Latin America in the form of missionaries to the West, a trend influencing everything from styles of worship to doctrine. Even the woes of the Anglican Church of Canada can be put on the doorsteps of surging African Anglicanism. The conservative parishes that, ha- that deserted their liberal national church in the past decade received their moral support primarily from conservative African bishops. The reasons for this growth and subsequent influence are complex. Demographics help tell some of the tale. Western birth rates are in sharp decline, African rates soaring. As populations grow, more people turn away from failing nation states and toward the relatively stable churches for food, shelter, education, medicine. According to the World Christian Database, 2% of the world's Christians lived in Africa in 1900 when the great Baptist missionary societies were sending out all their missionaries. Today, it's 20%. In less than 40 years, Africans will comprise 30% of the world's Christians. Taken together with Asia and Latin America, it will be 71%. In 1900, 82% of the world's Christians were in Europe and North America. That's why we, we were sending our missionaries overseas. Well, they're sending them to us now, friends. They're sending missionaries back to their spiritual parents and actually even exercising moral discipline over our defunct churches. One priest in Africa said, I see people turning to the church like in the Gospels. They turn to Jesus with inarticulate faith and trembling hope that he can resolve their most pressing afflictions. We're in a Western culture in a state of collapse right now, and the question is, are we armed with the Word of God in such a way to respond to the crisis that we are facing in terms of this commission? The church is to provide in its role, and with this I close, the sacraments, worship, and the teaching of the Word of God, and to give us our marching orders as we go out into every sphere of life in terms of the purposes of God. One of the things that has truncated the life of the church is pietism, and the pietist is one who does not apply scriptural theology to the world and its problems be they political, scientific, economic, social, or anything else, and they say, well, it's simply me and Jesus. Well, that's where it begins. But Jesus didn't call you so that you could be mummified and sat on the front row of a church. That's what William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said about the church in London. Did we get them converted and then we mummify them and stick them on the front pew to look good? And he wrote a book called Out of... Uh, in darkest England and the way out. He founded the Salvation Army. The work of the laity is a chaplaincy to carry 
this saving truth to every part of God's creation, the message of Christ and the message of the kingdom. And it simply means this for you and me, that we have to be a Christian in home, in school, in church, in state, in vocation, and in all of life. When you leave NBC or you work out of a church on a Sunday morning, you don't move from the realm of Christ into the realm of Moloch or Baal or any other god. You are still serving him because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if this all sounds far too far-fetched, consider as we close the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. This is verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, and he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and hills in the balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or been his counselor or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, verse 15, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are accounted by him less than nothing and worthless. God is bigger than the nations. He's bigger than all of the troubles in the nations and afflicting our world. And he's called out his people, his, his church, in terms of his purposes. And we're going to get into some of the specifics as we go on throughout this week. But that, I believe, is the nature and mandate of the church in terms of the kingdom of God. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that, first of all, you have called us out as a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, a people belonging to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for his salvation. Thank you that his life in us is our only hope. And thank you that you have called us, Lord, to a purpose, to a calling in terms of your kingdom, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Give us grace and strength as we seek to serve you this week. Refresh us and fill our hearts with new vision and vigor and send us out into the world as your people to serve your purposes for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.